The Stein Online Clubland Q&A begins right now. Welcome along. It is 5 p.m. North American Eastern Time on Good Friday. That is 6 p.m. in the Canadian Maritimes, half past six in Newfoundland and beyond the Americas, 10 p.m. in London, 11 p.m. in Stockholm, where they're thinking of abandoning their long-standing neutrality and joining NATO. Midnight in Kiev and Moscow, now in the same time zone, if not yet the same country. Half past one in Tehran for all you Newfoundlanders who moved to Iran for the half-hour time zone. 2.45 a.m. in Kathmandu for all you Iranians who moved to Nepal to check out the quarter-hour time zone. 5 a.m. In Singapore, Honkers and Perth, I'm terribly sorry about that. 8 a.m. in Sydney and Melbourne, which is a far more convivial hour for the Kippers and Kedgeri. And deep into the Easter weekend for our listeners in the Pacific. So uh, they'll have put aside the hot cross buns and be on to the chocolate bunnies. We shall have an Easter poem for you on Easter morning and various other seasonal delights over the weekend. Uh, Hey, let's get straight to your questions. What do we got here? Oh, uh, James P. says, In following current events from economics and inflation and supply chains to war and geopolitics, which of course are all connected, it seems to me a unifying theme is the revenge of real things. We've spent so much time lately on pronouns and tweets and net zero. We have an America where none of the biggest companies actually make anything we need. But in fact, the real things that keep us alive, like oil and minerals and food, and the ships and sea lanes that allow them to move around are still what really matter. Are we starting to wake up from virtual reality to find that actual reality has not gone away? I don't think so, James. Uh, Kipling got to all this in his great poem, uh, The Gods of the Copybook Headings, uh, which you can find over in our video poetry section, uh, because as I always say, video poetry is where the big bucks are, and... (laughs) Uh, I, actually, it ought to be bigger bucks because Kipling's Gods of the Copybook Headings will uh, tell you exactly. Uh, uh, it's it's like your revenge of real things, but it's it's actually framed in a more uh, poetic way uh, and is an. It's not really. In fact, it doesn't really have. I would say it doesn't really have a poetic sensibility. It's so hard and real. Um, But all the things you talk about, pronouns and tweets and net zero, all the people, uh, in fact, most of the people, if you, I don't know which part of the United States you're asking your question from, but almost all 
corners of the United States. If you just stop a hundred random people on the street, a whole big bunch of them will still think that pronouns and tweets and net zero are all the most pressing issues. Now, uh, reality always asserts itself. Uh, and that's because of uh, Mrs. Thatcher's great line, the facts of life are conservative. The facts of life are conservative, as Mrs. Thatcher said. Uh, in those days, the facts of life were still ours in the sense that when they asserted themselves, we still made things. Uh, we still controlled those supply chain routes and all the rest of it. Now, increasingly, the facts of life are Chinese uh, or they're Russian or Ukrainian, as in things like oil and gas and wheat. And we suddenly find ourselves at a time when reality is reasserting itself and we have no human capital to call on except legions of diversity consultants and uh, swimming champions hung like stallions. And when reality reasserts itself, that is not the human capital with which one would want to face reality. And so that is the problem there, James. I think some people are waking up. But you know, this, when you look at, for example, Joe Biden's poll numbers, they're still far too respectable. I don't, I don't understand. I know, you know, a lot of people have made their money and they're fine and they don't really notice when uh, the price of gas doubles, starts to treble. They don't really, you know, because they're OK and, you know, they might notice if there's a particular specialized product that's not available at the supermarket. But, you know, again, they're people who uh, they're, pe they're, they're people who, in a sense, uh, are cosseted from reality to one degree or another by the particular, you know, you can run on fumes for a long time. Uh, and and given the completely insane media coverage in the United States, um, what's surprising to me is uh, that, uh, you know, Joe, Joe Biden's numbers have been damaged, but he's he's not in the completely crapped out mold yet where he ought to be. Um we have uh, uh, an email from Frank Gallenstein. Mark says, although you... Oh, no, I'm Mark, aren't you? You're Frank. Uh, that's right. Sorry, that's part of the email. I got all a bit confused there. <laughs> My smooth broadcasting technique has gone to pieces. It doesn't usually do this until later in the hour. Uh, but Frank Gallenstein says, Mark, although you handled it professionally, I thought your first guess... Miss Mutesi, quite rude. I don't understand why a simple response to your question about the reduction of the male Rwandan population and its impact on accepting refugees, such as, no, I don't believe that impacted the government's decision, would have sufficed. I found your other two guests terrific, although I must admit it took every effort on my part to focus on what Miss Verladingerbroek was saying as she was very stunning. Well, she's selling God to post-Christian Europe, and um, I would I would wager that being stunning probably helps with that. Uh, as as for Maggie Mutesi, I think she's actually quite a you know people for start if you're 
in the United States or whatever, you just think of Africa as being full of Africans, whereas Africa is full of countries, and those countries are full of different types of Africans, and they tend to be quite proud of their country, as uh, Maggie Mutesi was. So she didn't want me quoting a Kenyan, a Kenyan friend, on uh, what the issue was with Rwandan demographics, because you know she she thinks Kenya is part of the problem and isn't interested in hearing what Kenyans want to say. And I found that. I actually think that's quite touching, you know, because if you look at the left, the left doesn't care about it. So they're being totally racist about Rwanda. You know, they they want open borders. So now Boris has outfoxed them by pledging to put all the people who arrive on the beaches, all the single men, on a one-way ticket straight to Rwanda, uh, which, as I pointed out, is in the Commonwealth. And when you apply that you do your processing in another Commonwealth country. What's not to like? Why suddenly is this corner of the Commonwealth, uh, you know, a a problem for the left? And uh, if you get approved to uh, and considered a genuine refugee, then you get permanent resident status, not in the United Kingdom, but in Rwanda. Uh, One's a Commonwealth country and the other's a Commonwealth country. What's the difference? Uh, And I was uh, saying, you know, this is like uh, this is like the U.S. government putting everybody who crosses the Rio Grande on a one-way flight to North Korea. That's what it is uh, in geographical terms. I think it's uh, uh, what what is it? It's about uh, four and a half thousand miles, something like that. Anyway, whatever it is, uh, might even be a little more. Anyway, whatever whatever it is, that's the that's that's what. Uh, he's proposing to do. And it, it makes you wonder, you know, wh- where's the where are the Republicans on something like this? I'd, be, I'd just be interested to... I'd, I don't feel... This is the other thing. There's basically three and a half million people who are going to cross that border and be given free cellular telephones and all kinds of other stuff when they cross. So they invade your country, and the government gives them free stuff. And you tell me that reality is reasserting itself, the revenge of real... It is real. Three and a half million people between now and September, that's seven million people a year. That's basically, you know, six times the size of the population of New Hampshire. You wonder why the Democrats want to get rid of the Electoral College? Because once it's a straight up and down vote, just the next six months intake of illegal aliens uh, will be way bigger in terms of presidential votes. They'll count for six times as much as New Hampshire uh, whatever it is now, 10 times as much as Vermont. But, you know, go ahead and lose your country. In the end, if people don't care about losing their country, you can't make them care about losing their country. That's one thing I like, actually, uh, about Maggie Mutesi. She loves her country and she doesn't want to hear anybody putting it down, whether it's the British left or it's me with a rude question about demographics. She's a Rwandan and she's proud to be Rwandan. And if there were more Americans like that, then there wouldn't be three and a half million people breaking into your country and being rewarded for it. I don't know if you've ever been the target of a home invasion, 
Uh, but uh, but if somebody does just kick your door down and uh, tie up your uh, your wife and daughter, do you then say, oh, I tell you what, I've been waiting for you to kick the door down. Here, look, here's a brand new f- smartphone for you. Because that's what the United States government is saying. And Americans put up with it. Americans put up with it. Uh, Boris Johnson has done this because he's got a political problem, because he's going to lose seats over this. And so he's come up with a plan by which it's similar to the Australian plan, but in its new wrinkle is not just that it's a holding camp, but that it is your permanent place of residence if you pass the test. And obviously, I mean, the one thing that... uh, Maggie Mutesi got wrong on yesterday's show, is, which I found rather endearing, is she doesn't realise it's a deterrent because you've got these human smugglers who are charging thousands and thousands of pounds, thousands and thousands of dollars to get people onto the southern shore of England. How's that price going to hold up? When everybody knows, oh, wait a minute, I'm paying you uh, £10,000 for you to get me into Rwanda? Uh, let me have a think about that. Ali M writes, hello, Mark. Although Trump deserves a second chance to run for president, as he had been cheated out of his rightful place in the White House by both the Democrats and the GOP elites, wouldn't it be better all around to have a new candidate such as Ron DeSantis, who has experienced governing and has made a name for himself as a brave and staunch conservative these past two years? No argument with that. Uh, Ali, uh, Ron DeSantis also, aside from his record in Florida, but he he also uh, has a great way of just uh, a great rhetorical style of just shoving it down the other guy's throats, which is is nationally worthy. Oh, uh, sorry if you heard a meow there, by the way. I'm sorry. I got a dog and a cat uh, chasing each other. Uh, around the studio, just like a bit of company. It's a lonely business radio. Uh, So that was, um, I think I've got no problem with Ron DeSantis uh, deciding he wants to run for president. If so, continues Ali, do you foresee warring factions within the Republican Party between passionate Trump supporters and those who see Trump as perhaps too old to run again and also blame his political inexperience and naivety as a catalyst for the leftist takeover of America? Happy Easter to you. (laughs) Uh, I think it's taking it a bit far to blame Trump for what's happening now. I do have, you know, when I said that, he didn't dance with them what brung him thing, that expression. I got criticised for, uh, by uh, some people in the comments for uh, expressing my dissatisfaction with that expression. But I dislike the way, you know, politics is conducted in half a dozen vernacular expressions. But that's how people think of it. And in that case, it happens to be true. Trump wasted his time uh, having dinner with uh, certain people, you know, four nights a week and giving uh, not so exclusive interviews to other people. You know, I don't want to I don't want to rehearse it all. I've got a I've got a slight, uh, 
You know, I, I was slightly on the receiving end of that thing in that Trump screwed me over for something completely inconsequential. Or he wouldn't he wouldn't stand by me. I think that's what it is. It was for some post on some uh, whatever it is, the National Arts Council or something like that. It's not a big thing. I didn't care about it. I still uh, supported Trump for re-election. But it seems to me, and I, you know, and I sort of accepted the fact that I'm a little weird, you know, and so perhaps uh, there were reasons or whatever. Uh, but then I just realized, no, it's because he lacks, uh, which is part of basic political antennae, the ability to discern who his real friends are. Uh, Ah, which is why John Bolton ended up as the national security advisor and uh, I got uh, cut loose for some crappy job I didn't even want on the National Arts Council. So in practical terms, this is what it means. Trump has to maintain his relevance between now and 2024. And that's difficult. I talked about that last week. But if you ask me about the factions in the Republican Party, there's there's the we'd like to go back to the dignified losers who know how to give a great concession speech like Mitt Romney and John McCain. There's a fact that's who the donors are most comfortable with. Uh, so they'd like they're looking for the the designated loser of 2024. You know, this year's Jeb, this year's John Kasich or whatever. Then there are other people who love. I think it's fair to say love Ron DeSantis. I think he's actually got a but whatever we are now, two years out, and he's still got an actual constituency. He's got one, which is unusual for a guy this far before the election. So I think he's got a constituency. That's two. Then the third one is Trump. The Trump loyal base. They're the people you see at these rallies. And then there's the fourth, which is people who would like Trumpism without Trump. And now there's a bit of overlap there with Ron DeSantis. Uh, That's I think that's Ann Coulter, for example. That's what she wants. She wants Trumpism without Trump because, you know, she she her her line is that uh, she backed Trump. She wrote a book about Trump. She came and introduced Trump at his rallies. And then she wakes up the morning after the election and it's uh, suddenly Ivanka and Jared are the second and third most important people in the administration. And she didn't vote for that. And they had all kinds of other things like uh, letting uh, prisoners out of jail and what have you. And so that's the that's the fluctuation between. But DeSantis already has a base of his own. Uh, then there'll be people wanting to look for the next Jeb Bush, and that's where all the money will go, because <laughs> Republican donors, <laughs> you'd almost think it was deliberate, wouldn't you? They like to pick on, they like to pick the guy who knows how to lose in a dignified uh, and respectful fashion that honors the system. And then there's Trump, and then there's people who want Trumpism without Trump. And those 
those four factions will expand and contract over the last over the next couple of years. I don't think it's worth actually uh, thinking right now. I mean, I think what what will happen if there is a Republican landslide in November? Then what you need to do is watch whether the Republicans actually do anything with it or whether they're just the Paul Ryan party. Robert Fox says, in anticipation of the GOP retaking control of Congress in the upcoming midterms, various sitting Republican congressmen are already being quoted in media interviews as declaring that once they are in power, quote-unquote, they will still need to bend and compromise in order to get things done. The Democrats never compromise on anything, and they have gotten more done to reshape the cultural and political institutions of the United States in the past generation than has been done in the 200 years prior. The Dems are mean, dirty, and nasty, which is how they get things done. The GOP, even when they are in the majority, act like the timid, milk-toast dweeb in the schoolyard. The timid, milk-toast dweeb in the schoolyard willing to toss aside values and standards just so he can awkwardly fit in with the obnoxious cool kids. Why do Republicans recoil from the idea of shoving a right-wing agenda down the left's gullet when that is what their supporters want? <sighs> I, you know, they, they've got... I compared them to the the boys at English, chilly English boarding schools who get paid threepence halfpenny or sixpence or whatever it is, whatever it is now, uh, to by the prefects to go and sit on the seats of the boys' toilets and warm them until the prefect is ready to wander in and assume his rightful position. And Paul Ryan is a great toilet seat warmer. And the Republicans of 2017 to 2019 were terrific toilet seat warmers. And somehow, there, as, as to talk about what I always talk about, which is the urgency, the urgency, because if we don't start to turn this thing around soon, it's over. I mean, and in fact, it's over uh, unless we pull off some miracles with people who are seriously committed to it. Now, the question is, do you think these guys are seriously committed to it? No, but you have huge obstacles in the way of forming new parties. You know, I hear a lot of comments about, oh, you've got no interest in the French. Why are you writing about the French? Like, we've got no interest in the French. The French are cheese-eating surrender monkeys. Well, they may be, but uh, they have a more flexible party system. It's not, they're not dealing with the frozen, same frozen, two frozen parties from the 1860s. Oh, God, I'm trying to think, well, the 18, well, that was the Second Empire in France. Uh, so... <laughs> That's how crazy that would seem to any anyone. But parties come and go, and there should be, when parties have outlived their usefulness, you should have a system flexible enough to permit you to form a new one. Penswood says, Mark, if you've gotten a complaint concerning your activities on GB News, I'd respond with documentation of all the terrific comments you have received. Bury them in paperwork. Second, what do you know about the fake DHS special agents? Very odd. Well, the thing about about Ofcom, uh, by who, which is the UK regulator who I'm currently under investigation by, 
And it's, you know, it's a bit like uh, it's well, actually, it's very reminiscent of things like uh, arbitration with CRTV or discovery with Michael Mann. You know, it's immensely time consuming and uh, it's intentionally so in order to take you out of the game. That's all I'll say on that. So I, I don't know, to be honest, how much longer the Mark Stein show will chunter along for because apart from anything else, having to deal with the regulatory guys takes up and I don't have a lot of time. It's quite hard doing a show uh, Monday to Thursday and uh, then having to respond to Ofcom as I have to do by, I think it's next Friday, uh, <laughs> only adds to the burden. So who knows how long the show Now, when you say about the fake DHS special agents, this this is in reference to two people in Washington. It's a very curious story. Two people in Washington who posed as uh, Homeland Security agents and got uh, actual Secret Service agents, i.e. the guys who protect the president and so forth, uh, to give them stuff that they shouldn't have been giving them. Um, so it it's actually it's actually tells you it, it's it it's like the Cartagena hookers thing. There's just far too many of these people, and the minute they're as numerous as say the Secret Service uh, guys are, then uh, you you know they're not people who are going to take a bullet for the president or anybody else. Uh, uh, they're, they're, they're just uh, time-serving bureaucrats for the most part. And don't, uh, you know, I know this ex-secret service. Yes, there's a few of them, but there's basically too, money, uh, too many. Now, the government lost its mo- these These two fake officers, Ariane Tahazadeh and uh, Haida Ali, uh, which I, who I, think, I think at least one of them is Iranian, Okay, so we've got the world's most expensive security and intelligence bureaucracy. That's the United States. And it's effortlessly penetrated by two guys who just print up, you know, fake uh, homeland security cards and then uh, basically entrap members of the Secret Service, including members of Joe Biden's uh, detail. Now, they've both been released uh, to home confinement rather than jail. And the magistrate judge, which is the term they use for the lower judges in the federal court system, um, uh, is totally unimpressed with uh, totally unimpressed with the government's argument here. Uh, And uh, the judge says the federal government has proffered zero evidence the defendants intended to infiltrate the Secret Service for a nefarious purpose or even that they specifically targeted the Secret Service. Um, And so his his view uh, is that this whole thing is like some FBI game, basically, that some something funny is going on here, but it's not a real crime. It's not a real crime. It's just more monkey business. 
And this actually ought to be disturbing to Americans. You know, the FBI thing, again, uh, which Kevin, Kevin, we talking was it last week we were talking about with Kevin Williamson at National Review? Uh, it actually takes quite a lot for either judges or uh, juries to actually dismiss federal prosecutors as a laughingstock. So it's interesting to me now that it's happened in two cases. And these guys, maybe these guys just got a better deal because they're Iranian. But it's, it's, uh, the, the government case doesn't make sense any more than it did with the uh, FBI uh, gubernatorial kidnap thing or that it did with the uh, January the 6th thing. Uh, the January 6th guys, though, mostly wound up in jail because they're uh, old white men. And these guys happen to be young, fetching Iranians. And so the judge is more inclined to give them the benefit of the doubt. But it's basically the deep state. It isn't really terribly deep anymore. It's all out there. You know, when you have smoke filled rooms, they're supposed to be back rooms. You're not supposed to put the smoke filled room in the front window. And that's the way it is with a lot of these deep, deep state uh, shenanigans. Um, so uh, I don't I don't think that's terribly uh, helpful to anyone, actually. Um, but but I don't believe a word that comes out of any federal agency. The corruption at the 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 federal uh, Department of Justice. The and I'll, I'll just do it for my own for my own business here, for my own life. You know. I meet with people in the media and occasionally we email each other, we text each other, we say something. to They're the people that de the Department of Justice is, uh, is, is surveilling uh, in case you say something about Joe Biden's daughter's laptop or whoever it is. So we have a, a dirty, stinking, rotten, corrupt Department of Justice that has no respect for uh, something as basic as freedom of the press and eavesdrops on uh, the Project Veritas guys, uh, 200,000 emails and gets Apple and Google to cooperate in that. I don't believe a word that comes out of these people. And I want a candidate, a Republican candidate, instead of this Nancy boy stuff from the Butch guys, I want one who says, actually, no, every aspect of the Department of Justice is correct, whether it's the Bureau of Prisons offing Jeffrey Epstein, or it's the prosecutorial guys, or it's the FBI guys jetting off uh, to London to meet Alexander Downer. Every aspect of the building is corrupt. We're going to uh, reduce the building to rubble and we're going to build a smaller department of federal justice out in Cedar Rapids, far away from anyone uh, they can cause problems for. I'm sick of the, the corruption in America is killing it as much as anything else. And again, Republicans aren't real about this because they tend to think, oh, you know, uh, one day it'll be our guys who are doing all the corrupt stuff. No, it isn't. The Department of Justice basically behaves as Democrat operatives when Democrats are in power, and it behaves as Democrat operatives when Republicans are in power. It's the corruption. And nobody talks about that. You should be ashamed 
of your federal government. Because we know it with the, with the IRS, nobody at the IRS, all that Tea Party targeting, nobody paid a, a, any price for that. So you pansies, you Republican, oh, I'm very tough, I'm a big Texas senator and I wave the Constitution around. Yeah? Well, tell me something. Why is it that, they, that nobody goes to jail or pays a price? For, I'm a big Texas senator and I wave the Constitution around. It's pathetic, 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 pathetic. Uh, okay. Um, we are going to have more of your questions in just a moment. But first, a sense of perspective. Keep up to date with the past on the 100 Years Ago Show with Mark Stein. Revenge in Berlin and in St. Louis, the winds of Superior and Indiana. And if the IRA don't get you, the horse will. It's April 1922. A hundred years from today. World News Update, the messy aftermath of the Great War continues. 34 countries are meeting in Genoa to try to do something about global economic problems. But while they were settling in, the German and Russian foreign ministers agreed to hold a separate secret meeting 15 miles to the east in the resort town of Rapallo. There they signed a treaty agreeing to renounce all territorial and financial claims against each other and to normalize diplomatic relations. France has now threatened to quit the Genoa conference because it views the Treaty of Rapallo as a provocation and is somewhat at odds with Great Britain, which is inclined to forgive some of Russia's debt, much of it owed to Paris from the Tsar's day. Ten of the nations at the Genoa conference are now trying to prevent a French walkout and have sent a note to Germany stating that they reserve the right to nullify any clauses in the Treaty of Rapallo that conflict with the Treaty of Versailles. Are there other ways of helping Russia? Well, the economist John Maynard Keynes has written an editorial urging Britain to loan Russia £150 million to be spent on British goods that would promote agricultural production and improve communications. That way, says Mr Keynes, Russia's famine would be ameliorated and food prices world wide would be lowered because it would shorten the time by which Russia becomes again an exporter of food. In the still new kingdom of Serbs, Croats and Slovenes, 400 carloads of ammunition and explosives were stored near the railway station at Bitola, which you may know better by its old Ottoman name of Manastir. The munitions exploded at around noon and completely destroyed an army barracks where 1,800 soldiers were having lunch and also a church packed with townsfolk attending a children's service. At least 400 people are dead. Nice and long since you went away I think about you all through the day My buddy the United States and Germany are buddies again, at least diplomatically speaking. Knights 
months were long since you went away, but now you're back, and Washington has normal diplomatic relations with the Teutonic state for the first time since the war. The former Republican Congressman Allenson B. Horton has arrived in Berlin to commence duties as the new U.S. ambassador. Jamal Azmi was governor of the Trebizond Vilayet in the last years of the Ottoman Empire and is known to Armenians as the butcher of Trebizond. He was partial to so-called sex orgies with Armenian girls aged 10 to 13. After sating himself, he would have the girls drowned at sea. In exile in Berlin, Mr. Azmi and his chief advisor, Bayadin Sakir, were strolling with their families in the Uhlenstrasse in Berlin when two Armenians approached. One shot and killed Azmi, but Sakir attempted to flee and was killed by the other Armenian with a single shot to the head. Is monarchy a thing of the past? Well, two rival pretenders to the throne of Portugal nevertheless think it worth entering into a resolution of their separate claims. In Paris, King Manuel II, who was deposed in 1910 when Portugal became a republic, has met with Duarte Nuno de Braganza, the grandson of King Miguel I, who was deposed in 1834. They have agreed to unify a monarchist movement divided between Manuel's constitutionalist branch and Duarte's Miguelist branch. Duarte will now support King Manuel if the monarchy is restored, but Manuel has agreed that upon his death, Duarte will be his successor as head of the royal house. We shall see if either man ever sits upon the throne in Portugal. The leader of the provisional government of the new Irish Free State, Mr Michael Collins, was returning to Dublin from County Kildare and had arrived at Rutland Square in a convoy of four motorcars. Twelve men emerged from a house, walked past Mr Collins without recognising him, and opened fire on the other men in his party. The Irish leader then drew his own revolver and engaged the shooters, disarming one lad at gunpoint. I asked him if he knew who I was, and when he replied no, I told him. That seemed to make him more uncomfortable than ever. Mr Collins is a lucky man. Others not so much elsewhere in the Emerald Isle. Another half dozen have been killed in Belfast. And Frank Lawless, a Republican revolutionary who voted in favour of the new Irish Free State, is dead not at the hands of his fellow Irishmen, but because his pony and trap overturned. Mr Lawless was 51 and Mr Collins and his former comrade Eamon de Valera attended his funeral and stood side by side. A rare event these days. Keeper back to me on Lake Superior 
all aboard the Canadian ship the Lampton have been killed in a gale on Whitefish Bay. The 16-man crew are dead, as are the men they had been transporting. Five lighthouse keepers bound for Ile Parisienne, Mishipicotan Island and Caribou Island. Tornadoes have swept through the American states of Illinois, Indiana and Ohio, killing about 50 people. Hedrick, Indiana is a small community of only a few dozen. The tornado swept through it an eighth of a mile wide, destroying all 10 businesses and six houses, killing four people in the settlement, another seven in the outskirts and leaving 35 injured. Tens of thousands of Hoosiers have flocked to what remains of the ruined township to survey the devastation, and the governor has been obliged to deploy the National Guard for crowd control in a village used to dozens and now trying to accommodate thousands. We all love the pictures of William Desmond, the so-called king of the serials and the star of a Broadway cowboy and a sagebrush hamlet. Alas, while filming the forthcoming Perils of the Yukon, Mr. Desmond was standing on a cliff when a ledge of melting ice and snow gave way and he was plunged 50 feet into the frigid river below. He is reported to be badly injured and it is not known when, if ever, he will resume shooting on the picture. Charles Arling was born in Toronto but became a big picture star in California. Just a year or two back, we all thrilled to The Jackknife Man and The Woman in Room 13, but there will be no more. He is dead from pneumonia at 41. In Inglewood, California, a Spanish-American family was believed to be engaged in the production of bootleg hooch which is said to have blinded one of their customers. In consequence, they found themselves raided by up to 200 masked Q. Klux Klansmen, including a Grand Goblin of the Klan. A Japanese neighbor attempted to call the police, but the constable on duty uh, is said to have been participating in the Klan raid and was shot dead at the scene. In London, just six months ago, a group of eminent British writers, including Joseph Conrad, John Goldsworthy, George Bernard Shaw and H.G. Wells, got together to form a club called PEN, as in poets, essayists, novelists. Now they have a New York branch. Willa Cather, Eugene O'Neill, Robert Frost, Robert Benchley are among the members of a new American PEN. The first president of the club is the man widely considered to be the United States' greatest living writer, the author of The Magnificent Ambersons, Booth Tarkington. Running wild, lost and cruel, running wild, mighty boy. 
Streets of St. Louis, Missouri, on December the 30th, Luke Kennedy, the chief hitman for the Hogan gang, was shot in the leg by members of the rival crime gang Egan's Rats. He taunted his would-be killers by telling the press, the other crowd has had their try and missed, the next time they will have to shoot straight and quick, we know who they are now. Next time came sooner than he thought. He was still recuperating from his leg wound and convalescing at his grandfather's house. Mr Kennedy drove his Dodge touring car to Hamburger Avenue for an assignation with Mrs Edith Gersbach, 25. The men of the Egan gang did not take Kennedy's advice and shoot quick. They lingered and taunted him as he attempted to hide under the steering wheel of his machine. The Hogan-Egan gang war is heating up. Wait till you get them up in the air, boys. Wait till you get them up in the air. You can get them up in the air, but can you keep them there, these infernal flying machines? The Portuguese aviator Sacadura Cabral and his navigator Gago Coutinho set off from San Vicente Island off the West African coast for Brazil on what was supposed to be the first aerial crossing of the South Atlantic. Their seaplane, the Lusitania, was not cooperative. As they approached Brazilian territory at St. Paul Rocks, the Lusitania lost one of its floats and had to be abandoned to sink into the ocean. The two men are safe but frustrated at having got so near and yet so far, and they want to get back in the sky again. In sports news, Clarence Damar has won the Boston Marathon again and set a new course record of 2 hours, 18 minutes and 10 seconds. The first time he won, he was advised by doctors at the starting line not to run it because of his heart murmur. Mr Damar is now known as Clarence Damarathon. O'Brien is trying to learn to talk Hawaiian, but Boston-born Peter Cushman Jones mastered it effortlessly. An American banker, he served as the Queen of Hawaii's last Minister of Finance, and then, following the abolition of the monarchy, he co-founded the Bank of Hawaii. Mr Cushman Jones is dead at 84. Christopher Augustine Buckley is how he was christened, but he was better known as Blind Boss Buckley. He was a saloon keeper who became blind 
resigned after joining the Democrat Party in San Francisco, of which he became the very powerful boss. It helps to be blind when you run a political machine, not just because there are a lot of things you're not meant to see and don't wish to see, but because in the case of Blind Boss Buckley, it gave him a powerful memory that enabled him to recall every word of any contract uh, city ordinance or other document that was read to him. Mr. Buckley was accused of corruption, bribery and multiple felonies, but the San Francisco Chronicle was inclined to be generous. Quote, the passing of the great leader will be a tragedy to many who were aided by him in time of need. And that's the way of the world, April 1922. A hundred years from today Mark Stein's Clubland Q&A live across the planet. Greg Mead. Uh, Greg Mead says, hi, Mark. Uh, just want to let you know that the Clubland Q&A generally dovetails nicely with my fortnightly chemo session. It provides excellent entertainment for an otherwise pensive time. Well, uh, thank you, I think, Greg. I hope, I hope the chemo goes well, though I can't say that that would be my choice uh, if uh, I was uh, having a chemo. So what was I listening to? The, the last time I think I had, an, was it an MRI? Uh, something where I was lying in one of those tubes. And they ask you what kind of music they were. I asked for chamber music. A little string quartet. That's all I can take and things like that. And uh, my, uh, my my older boy, he uh, he decided to go for it, and uh, he asked for heavy metal. And I can tell you, he regretted that decision by the time his session was over. So I hope Clubland Q and A go better together with your chemo, and I hope the chemo is going well. Uh, Christina Parau writes. Dear Mark, uh, why of all people are you relying on a French establishment journalist for your coverage of the elections? You probably speak French. Uh, absolument. Mais non, bien sûr, peut-être. I can go either way. Uh, why not interview some of the candidates like Zemmour or someone on his team? Anne-Elizabeth Moutet falsely portrays especially Zamor's words and stance. I perused everything he put out since November, and my first and last thought was how similar his ideas are to yours in America Alone. Yeah, uh, he read uh, America Alone when it came out. In fact, uh, I believe he played a small part. There's a French edition of America Alone. There's bits I don't care for uh, because I don't like the translation, but I'm aware that in English it has a lot of puns and jokes that are hard to translate. Anyway, I don't, there's bits of the translation I don't care for. Um, but I believe he was in, not instrumental, but he played a small part in bringing that book to the attention of the publisher. Uh, you probably know that Zemmour and Douglas Murray are friends, as seen in one of the Danube Institute's video casts. <laughs> a few months ago. Uh, Zamor has linked his ideas to U.S. intellectuals like Sam Huntington and Christopher Lash. 
Uh, if you, Murray, Huntingdon and Lash aren't wignuts, then why do you go along with treating Zamor like one? Do you know, this email is beginning to annoy me. Zamor lost. So I'm not even sure why he's this thing to you, Christina. He got 7% in the end. And I can tell you, because I mentioned this to Anne Elizabeth on air, that the commune I know best in France, where I spent the happiest days of my life, uh, and over whatever it was, 42, 43, 40, maybe 44 percent of people voted for the so-called extreme right. So it's, you know, uh, that commune is very comfortable with voting for extreme right wing candidates. But over 30 percent of them voted for uh, Marine Le Pen and only 7 percent for uh, Zamor. Zamor destroyed his own candidacy with his reaction to the war. And we talked about this on air, Anne Elizabeth and I, and Anne Elizabeth reported what he'd said in his reaction to the war. And then I said what I would have said, because when war breaks out, it's not like declining healthcare services or uh, increasing inflation, where you've got two, three, four, five, seven times to get your line on it right. Uh, boom, you wake up one morning and tanks are crossing the border. And you've got to get your reaction right there and then. And he didn't. And he fell. I think his high point in the polls was the day before the Russian invasion. 16.5%. And he lost more than half of it between then and election day. So he's a loser. And it was a self-inflicted loss. And uh, that's what we're talking about here. We're not talking about whether he can write a book like mine or a book like Douglas Murray's or a book like Sam Huntingdon's. We're talking about political performance in the course of an election campaign. And he blew it. And so he's not, we can't vote for him now. You may like him and good luck. And if he's uh, still alive in five years time, because he's getting on a bit, you might be able to vote for him again. But the fact of the matter is right now, you've got a choice between Macron and Marine Le Pen. So I'm not even sure why this is a discussion. But I am not sure either why you think I am to, uh, I'm, I'm to, uh, you know, I'm not, I'm treating Zamor uh, improperly. Have you read a word of what I've written about Zamor? Have you actually heard what I've said about Zamor on air? His, you say, all you quote, all you, and if you're going to, I'll give you a tip, Christina, because I'm getting annoyed by this, because what you're doing to me is the thing the lefties do, which is why I've now got this bloody stupid Ofcom inquiry in my life. You're, you're, you're doing guilt by association. You say, uh, you talk about uh, Anne Elizabeth Moutet uh, as a French uh, establishment journalist. Here's the only evidence you give. You don't quote me. You don't quote her. You quote... Someone in the Telegraph, you say, here from the Telegraph, quote, put together all the so-called extremist candidates won around half the vote. Anne Elizabeth Moutet, that's not actually true. It's, you know, as I said, my town, it was quite high, the, the one I was talking about, and that is 40-something percent. Anne Elizabeth Moutet, 
this guy writes, whoever he is, you don't say. Anne Elizabeth Muta, a wonderful Parisian writer, tells me right-wing Le Pen has been detoxified by the even wackier candidacy of Eric Zemmour, who, among other things, wanted to ban Muslim names. I'm not going to go into the name thing. I'm well used to that. My kids were born in a Francophone jurisdiction, and I remember when my daughter was born and I took along uh, the... the uh, you have to have... In Quebec, you have to have a na- your name approved by um, uh, the state, by the province, uh, because they don't want anybody with non-Quebecois names, although they'll tolerate Anglo ones. But the the lady who represented l'état civil uh, to me uh, wasn't persuaded that the name for my daughter it was either a Franco or Anglo name, and she was thinking about banning it. And I had to do some pretty quick, nimble footwork to get that. So I'm entirely comfortable, you know. And I, again, this is one of these things where where um, people will talk about individual rights or anything. Well, Quebec is Quebec then was in the situation almost all Western nations are. It's whether you want to die for an abstraction, like the right to name your kid after the 1966 England World Cup football team, uh, or whether you actually want to survive as a society. So I've got no problem with Monsieur Zemmour's uh, insistence on people having a French name. Then you say, Mark, I've always admired your courage. I can't understand why you're letting us down. Well, bugger you, Christina Parau. This idea that I'm not being courageous. Are you going to sit by while democracy is demolished by a press hell-bent on burning down the very possibility of truth and the search for truth? Thank you for your time. No, 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 you don't get to do that. If you've got a problem with something I said, quote me. If you've got a problem with something Anne Elizabeth Mute said, quote her. But what you're doing is the crappy old, I don't care what some guy in the Daily Telegraph says. I don't care. The Telegraph's been crap since I left, which is 15 years ago now. So I don't read the Telegraph. I don't know the Telegraph. I don't even know the name because you don't include it. This guy who's supposedly quoting her indirectly. But I can tell you, Anne Elizabeth Mute is not the sort of person who talks about people as even wackier. The fact of the matter is, oh, let's go back because I'm getting really annoyed now. I don't want to have my integrity attacked because when you're A lone commentator, that's all you have, your integrity. If you don't have that, you know, uh, then you're just one of these guys like Mark Levin uh, and Glenn Beck who are never Trumpers until somebody shows them how many affiliates they've lost and then they change their mind. So I don't want to be attacked for that. What have I said about Zamor? in print or on air, that is, that's, that's got you mad. What come to that? What has Anne Elizabeth said? We know the truth. I, say, I credited him with moving the Overton window, as everyone now says, in the election. So he has raised subjects that couldn't be raised before and which now can. And uh, I think uh, that's a, a very great and useful thing to do. Uh, but uh, Anne Elizabeth is quite right that um, uh, Marine Le Pen detoxified herself 
to some extent because he's doing all the difficult Overton window moving and she ran the blandest campaign she's ever had. I said all this a week ago. I said all this in print on Monday and on air on Monday. And that happens to be an accurate analysis of what happened. Earlier, if you listened to me and Anne Elizabeth in the fall, uh, or whenever it was we first, January, or whenever it was we had a first conversation about this thing, I suggested to Anne Elizabeth that she had over-detoxified herself and needed to retoxify herself. Uh, but Marine Le Pen felt differently about it and, as I said, fought the blandest campaign she's ever had. Now, now you say, well, why aren't you talking to Eric some more? He's, uh, he's read America alone. You two would appear to be soulmates. Well, actually, because uh, we invited Eric Zamore to come on the show and he didn't want to. So maybe you should address him. You can't understand why he's letting us down now. But I'm the same. I'm consistent. And I talked to Anne Elizabeth Mute because she's actually her, her, um, her sense of how it lies on the ground uh, is very accurate. When I named this particular commune that I know very well with the over 42 percent who voted uh, for right-wing, extreme right-wing candidates, so-called, she knew instantly where it was because she knows the lie of the land. This whole idea that you don't talk to anyone unless you're in 100% agreement. You know, well, I was pretty much in 100% agreement uh, with Eric Zemmour until he bungled the launch of the war. And I'm not talking about it whether you like Putin uh, and uh, you think Zelensky is uh, an obvious shill for some deep state shenanigans of Joe Biden and uh, Lindsey Graham or whatever. I'm just talking about running for election. He blew it. Uh, his, uh, he lost over half of his support between the launch of the war. He peaked on February the 23rd, the day before the tanks rolled in. So that's a fact. But I do agree with Zamor. But he didn't want to come on the show. I don't hold that against him other than, uh, any more than I hold Trump screwing me over on the National Council of Artsy Fartsy Wankers. But I do resent uh, someone who attacks my integrity, attacks my integrity uh, without quoting me, without quoting Anne Elizabeth, instead just quoting some no-name ass in the Telegraph, uh, a newspaper I never read. Uh, so I, uh, I regret having to be rather ruder to our uh, questioners than I usually am, but there's nothing I, I abs, you know. I occasionally write about this, only if it becomes an incident or if someone else writes about it, as, you know, with Douglas and um, when we were in Copenhagen being uh, protected by the Danish Secret Service. You know, that's the only time I ever mention it, when it's, it's sort of percolated out uh, and it's already out there in the real world. But I don't write about it a lot, but it's not nice to have to go around uh, with uh, armed protection because of the things you've said. So I, I don't want to be told 
by someone who hasn't bothered to do the work of finding out what I actually said, uh, that I'm selling us out. I'm letting you down now. I invited him on the bloody show and Monsieur Zemmour, in his wisdom, uh, you know, uh, he, he bungled that the same way he bungled the whole Ukraine invasion thing. I'm not saying it had as much effect on his numbers, but, you know, uh, he, he miscalculated there. He should have come on the show, but he didn't. But don't blame me. Why not interview Zemmour? Oh, yeah, we, uh, we asked him to come on the show a couple of times, I think. And he, uh, and he chose not to. And now he's a 7% loser and he's not in the election. The election is between Le Pen and Macron. And so he's not coming on the show now because he's just some 7% loser who's not in the election anymore. That's from Christina Parau. I, know, I say what I want. I hate this. You can, you can take it from me uh, that if I say something... It's because I mean it. I don't say things I don't mean. No one puts words in my mouth. You could at least, if you, if you seriously think that's a possibility, Christina, you're honestly in the wrong club. Uh, Veronica writes, hi, Mark. Here's a slightly different, though not very jolly question for you. Back in 2007 at UC Berkeley, you said that the creation of Saudi Arabia was the great foreign policy mistake of the 20th century. Do you still hold to that view, or was the West's decision to enable the world's only economically viable form of communism in China actually a far worse move in the long run? <laughs> Thanks and happy Easter. It's damn, it's, you know, it's, uh, you, you're really looking for a neither of the above box there. Um, yeah, I think the creation of Saudi Arabia was a foreign policy mistake. Because it, it, it was an entity that should never have come into existence. And it has had a huge distorting effect. You, you know, people think it's a sort of fact of life. No, it, no, it isn't. Ibn Saud was a guy too bloodthirsty um, for uh, the genial British uh, colonial officers who were wandering around Araby in the wake of the Ottoman collapse. This is all 100 years ago show type stuff. Uh, back when I don't think he was an emir. Was he? I think he just we didn't we do that in one of the recent shows. He upgraded himself to emir. Um, but the fact so when the British lost, the British preferred the Hashemites. Uh, and therefore, the uh, Ibn Saud looked around for some new patrons and found the Americans. And it was a great foreign policy era. It was the creation of a, a malign nation state we enormously enriched and it used its riches to destroy us. Now, that's true in a certain sense uh, about China too, except that China obviously is a thing and has been a thing for centuries and centuries and centuries, and so we didn't actually create the monster there. And also, I would say this when I talk about foreign policy mistake, I think the worst aspect of the decision to outsource first manufacturing and then the so-called knowledge economy, like, like you can decide, you get to decide, you send all your business, all your manufacturing to China, and you think, oh, yes, China, man, we just content 
to make you a crappy T-shirt and the crappy socks and shoes. Uh, and you don't think it's going to occur to those guys that if they can take all your manufacturing, they can take all your knowledge economy too. And the thing about that is it isn't a foreign policy mistake. It's a domestic policy mistake that has destroyed thousands of American communities where there are no longer any factories to work in. There are only crappy convenience stores or the local meth lab. Uh, so I would, I would distinguish it that way. Um, Scott Scherzer writes from Miami Beach. Dear Mark, after it was announced that the federal uh, mask mandate for air travel would be extended yet again. Yeah, I, I really hate that. You know, I just hate that. Uh, and the reason is it causes me the, the masks on flights cause me huge damage which is why I, with cooperative stewardesses, one just orders, uh, you know, more food, more drink, gets up and goes to the bathroom 37 times to, to take the mask off inside the bathroom and gulp some fetid uh, airplane toilet air for a couple of minutes. It really just uh, does terrible damage to me does terrible damage to me. And it takes me days and days to recover for it. It's one reason I don't give any uh, speeches in America anymore. Uh, because the, the last time I did it, I flew to Tennessee and I just had no voice um, when I got there because of having this, because of flying Delta uh, it's a shame there's no cameras here because I always do the, my all-time best eye roll whenever I mention Delta. Uh, and uh, all the things I usually do, like take some roses, lime juice, cordial or whatever, don't work. It takes me days. For, so I, there's no point. The, and the odd thing is, you know, you can say what you like about certain European countries, but they're a lot easier on this front. British Airways, for example... You can, you can go mask-free on British Airways, except when the flight is to New York or L.A. out of Heathrow, because uh, the United States requires you to be masked. This, again, is part of the great evil of this federal mask mandate. Requires you to be masked from the minute the plane leaves United Kingdom airspace. Anyway... Scott continues, after it was announced that the federal mask mandate for air travel would be extended yet again, a conservative commentator stated that the American public would stand for this only so long. Who was that? Was, was that uh, Mark Levin? Uh, I have been hearing that for over two years now, and I'm still waiting for the great revolt. You know, uh, this is usually the point at which I quote that great George Orwell line after he went to a mine workers meeting in uh, I think it was the Midlands or the north of England and he expected them to be riled up and in revolutionary mode and instead they were a bit passive for his tastes and he came away and he said there is no turbulence left in England and it has been a question these last two years whether there is turbulence left in America. We saw some turbulence on January the 6th, but everyone who was in town that day had their life wrecked. So there's a lot of other people who think discretion is the better part of turbulence. 
And if you look at uh, the Canadian truckers, uh, there was an attempt to do an American thing. wasn't, you know, it wasn't anything, not in the same way. If you compare it to the demonstrations that our friend Ava Velardinger broke, uh, who was on uh, the Mark Stein show on Thursday, the demonstrations that Ava participated in in the Netherlands and elsewhere where the uh, where, where the uh, Dutch police took their batons out on the lockdown protesters um, and if you compare it with other uh, demonstrations in other parts of the continent. And I always go back, I always make this point, you know, that, that one of those great, Amer- I'm, I'm a writer and I fell in love. Uh, one reason why I loved listening to popular song was that it made me fall in love with American English and learn a lot of words I wouldn't otherwise know, like ornery. Americans were ornery. Uh, and that's a great word. It doesn't really translate into uh, British English. Uh, and uh, and there's been a distinct lack of orneriness um, in, in places where there ought to be a lot more. Scott says, I mean, obviously, your great state, Scott, is an exception, but I wouldn't say uh, it had anything to do with orneriness. I think it had to do with a governor who, as he always says, just looked at the data in those early days and reacted accordingly. And he always checked out the data himself. That's the difference between that guy and the rest. I fear that we have lost much of what has made us great, says Scott. As long as there are shiny objects to keep us amused, we will do nothing more than shake our heads and murmur tusk tusk. I'm not sure of what the breaking point might be. Bare supermarket shelves, $20 a gallon gasoline, no lights when we flick the switch. It seems as though it will take a lot more than we are currently experiencing before we take a serious stand. All those conditions we're going to get to rather sooner than most people think, bare supermarkets. I mean, the supermarkets, most of the supermarkets, even in relatively functioning states, uh, now only need about a tenth of the shelf space compared to what they had before. The items are very spaced out now and some aisles are entirely empty. No lights when we flick the switch? Yeah, well, they already have a touch of that in California. It seems as though it will take a lot more than we are currently experiencing before we take a serious stand. This evening at sundown begins the Passover observance. I hope Jew and Gentile alike will contemplate the history of tyranny and enslavement. Let us heed this lesson before it uh, is too late. Yes, indeed. Thank you for that, Scott. Um, uh, where, where, where are we going now? I've been going backwards, I think. Still, I can, maybe I should carry on going backwards. Uh, <laughs> what's, what's happening if we go forwards? Um, uh, Ken says, I love your writing and other commentary, Mark, but sometimes still despair about the future. Any thoughts or ideas as to what we can do to improve our prospects? Happy Easter. I think one thing we can all do is just to tell the truth. That's, that's all I do, which is why I got very angry 
at uh, Christina, implying that I'd somehow sold out or uh, I was, you know. And, and by the way, I'll, just to come back to that, what we shouldn't do is do this thing where we just hang out with people who are in 100% agreement with us. I'm sorry I got a little hoarse uh, when I got a bit heated back there. Um, we, we can't, we, without, you know, I, I'm not in 100% uh, agreement with Anne Elizabeth Moutet, although I tell you something, I first met her 20 years ago, and in French terms, she was extremely right-wing then. And the only reason, reason she doesn't seem so right-wing now is because... Uh, it is because many of her fellow Frenchmen have also become right wing. As I said, you know, the 40 percent who uh, voted for hardcore extreme right wing candidates, so-called. So the, the, the trick is to hang out with people uh, who will only go 70, 80 percent of where you are and try to figure out, you know, why it is that makes them stop there. And uh, and see if you can reach some accommodation on that. And the other thing I would say is that it it, it helps just to be upfront, upfront, completely upfront, with uh, with people who disagree with you. Because one one of the things I understand, nobody wants to lose their job and all the rest of it. But at the same time, it's terribly corrosive of someone. Of, it's terribly corrosive of anyone to have to live a lie. And the left don't. I mean, what the trick the left, the, the advantage the left has is that they can persuade people to go along with things that in their heart they don't believe. But because certain people have said them, they feel obliged to go along with. You know, the right is slightly getting this whole business with the uh, don't say gay law in in uh, in Florida wrong. Um, yes, you know, if you want to talk about anal sex to a six-year-old, you're sick. And uh, I don't want you anywhere near my six-year-old. That's a perfectly healthy position. But it is not the case that all the people who are uh, who are talking about anal sex to six-year-olds are pedos who want to sodomize them. Uh, that's not true. I mean, yes, they put the ones with the weird colored hair and the piercings uh, up on Instagram and TikTok and whatever. Um, but we all know if you go to any parent-teacher association, most of the teachers I think it's something like 80% of the grade school teachers are like, um, you know, women in middle age. And so they're nice, they're nice ladies with cardigans and gray hair. And yet, nevertheless, they think it's appropriate to talk to six-year-olds about anal sex. You couldn't talk to that teacher about anal sex. If you wanted to talk, say, if you, you know, if you go up to her, if they have a parent-teacher dance... And uh, they're playing I Will Always Love You. And uh, you start talking to the teacher uh, about uh, anal sex. You'll be uh, me too pretty quickly. But if she wants to do it to your kid, she can do it. So these are very normal people. Normal people who have been persuaded 
to believe absolutely abnormal things. Uh, and I think it is. I, th I think that's why it's extremely important to live in truth and to assert normality, because so so the fifty-eight-year-old grade school teacher doesn't get to think that everybody else has accepted this as normal. Uh, and I, I, the other thing I would say is is uh, when you can bring. We might talk about this one on Monday. The the Chinese, it turns out, have invented a kind of artificial womb. I was wondering when this would uh, come along. I, I wrote a little story anticipating it uh, a few years ago. Uh, actually, it must be more like 20 years ago, back when all this thing started about, uh, I think it was over two gay guys in, um, in England uh, who'd been... Uh, trying to have a kid for, you know, years and nothing seemed to work. Uh, and then they wondered if that might be because they're both men. I did that joke in the prison of Windsor and I'm a little too fond of it. Um, but uh, they, so they co-mingled, uh, apologies if you're just uh, sitting down to supper or whatever, they uh, co-mingled their seed and put it in a test tube and uh, sent it off to Wombs R Us in California and some kid emerged from the end of it. And the Chinese now recognize that, you know, if you're like a nice shishi gay couple, you don't want some womb renter uh, coming into the process. You'd like to do it without that. So they've invented some kind of artificial womb. And you know what the next stage will be? Uh, it will be an artificial womb that you can wear on your tummy, just as if you were a real uh, pregnant, uh, pregnant person or whatever they call women these days. That's going to be the next thing, because uh, as uh, Ava, uh, I can't remember whether she said this on air or uh, it was some other. But Ava's thing is that this is the. This is all part of the transhumanism thing, the severing of us from biology and especially from natural procreation. And that in turn destroys the past. It severs you from the past. Like the little old lady in my New Hampshire town who uh, does the genealogy for the historical society and knows who is a second cousin of whom and where their uh, family trees meet in 1872 and all the rest of it, her job, she will be completely redundant because that will be nothing to do with being a mother or a father anymore because you'll just get your Chinese womb, you'll walk around with it on your belly. Uh, and just when you go out to show people that you're enceinte with child, um, but you won't need to wear it around the house. So it'll be a lot easier and you'll grow your child in there. And uh, that's uh, and so it's not just about severing us from biology, but severing us from the past. And I think so. I think the thing to do is to can uh, come back to what Ken's saying is to use your energies. The one thing people I didn't realize how much. Uh, the one thing people like about this club is the camaraderie, the camaraderie. When we were on our last cruise before the COVID clobbered our cruise business, there were all these people from California. I, and I know it's a big state, but all these people say, oh, this is one. I have to keep my mouth shut all day long. And it's great just to be able to have dinner every night 
with people I can talk honestly to. And think about that. Think about that. Think about that. Think about the need. It's, you're not healthy suppressing it. So just say it. Don't say it necessarily about, you know, climate change or Islam or, uh, you know, the hot, whatever you think is the hot button issue. But just make it clear who you drop hints as to who you are without picking a fight with anyone and and just see, you know, 10 stout hearted men can become a hundred stout-hearted men, can become a thousand stout-hearted men. Palm Sandu, if she were here, she would say, oh, and women too. Yes, and women too. But you have to not only living in truth means uh, when you're, and this is a thing to, at this time of year is an important thing to bear in mind. An important thing to bear in mind. You this is no time to bear false witness to explicitly deny who you are. Uh, there's a seasonal thought for you. Uh, thank you. Thank you for that uh, question, Ken. We do our best, and I know people appreciate the camaraderie, and that's why it's important, I think, uh, to try and expand that, to try and increase that, to say, oh, I, I love the Mark Stein Club. I can be completely upfront, and then we go on a cruise and I have dinner and I don't have to bite my tongue all the time. And that's great, and that's great. Uh, but it's, it's better to be able to find one, two, seven, 14 people uh, in your neighborhood uh, that you can, can be the same with too. Well, it's uh, Good Friday. And this is one of the finest musical meditations on that day, written by Haydn upon the invitation of a canon at the Cathedral of Cadiz, who paid the composer by sending him a cake filled with gold coins. I thought Carrie Katz might do that, but he has no style. Uh, it was first performed in 1786 at the Good Friday service, but after eating his cake, uh, Haydn spent the next decade reworking the piece in any number of forms. It was originally a uh, composition for full orchestra. Then he rescored it for string quartet and solo piano, and finally as an oratorio, which I think was what the canon probably had in mind originally. I doubt you've heard it quite like this ever before, though, because it's a combination of versions, as it were. The choral text accompanied by a chamber ensemble. Uh, seraphic fire with the spectral quartet. Haydn called the piece the seven last words of our Savior on the cross, being the seven utterances, utterances uh, Jesus is reported to have spoken during his crucifixion. This is the conclusion of the work, a great composer's interpretation of the very last words Christ spoke on this day, Good Friday, Father, into thy hands I commend my spirit.
Into thy hands I commend my spirit. The last words on the cross from Jesus of Nazareth this Good Friday. And the conclusion, Vater in deiner Hande gebik meinen Geist from Haydn's great masterwork on this theme in a choral chamber version 
with seraphic fire handling the words and the spectral quartet playing the notes. We'll have more music, plus Rick McGuinness's movie pick, plus our continuing tale for our time by Anthony Trollope, uh, plus more seasonal observances, all coming up this Easter weekend at Stein Online. Happy Easter. Happy Passover. Stein's Clubland Q&A is a production of Mark Stein Enterprises and Oak Hill Media. All rights reserved.